Welcome to An Hour of Your Life. My name is Kim. And I am Steve. And we are on vacation up in Maine. Um, We are tucked away in the woods. We are broadcasting from our mobile studio somewhere in the deep woods of Maine right now, near Southwest Harbor. Near Acadia State Park. Yeah, near National Park. National Park. National Park. National Park. It's our 10th episode. Yeah. And Steve (laughs) is slickering horse snot and somehow managed to con me into doing bluegrass for for our first nice round number 10th episode. It had nothing to do with that. Yeah, okay. just, we were talking about what to do. Hey, just real quick before we get here. Uh, so we drove from Ohio, and Maine was a last-minute change in where we wanted to go. We were going to go out to Custer State Park in South Dakota, but we, we just Googled and learned that Maine was very dog-friendly, and we do have Jack and Rupert with us, and like... The other day, we went to a restaurant. The dogs are allowed in. They can't go inside, but they can stay on the deck. Yeah. And so it, it was a last-minute change, and we're very glad to be here. And we'll it tell is. you about that a little bit later, why are, why we are very glad to be here. We're glad to be here for a lot of reasons. For a lot of reasons. Um, it's yeah. beautiful, for one thing. Bar Harbor is super dog-friendly. Um, the people here are really nice. Yeah. New Englanders, I think, get a bad rep. Like, yeah. The, I th- so if you're from New England... The stereotype in the rest of the country, or at least in the Midwest, is that y'all are um, kind of, I don't, it's not, not necessarily snotty, but like kind of, you, you kind of keep to yourselves. Not friendly. Yeah, you're kind of keep to yourselves. Not, you're not open. Not yeah. open, not personable. Yeah. That has not been our experience at all. Everybody we have talked to coming across, driving through New York, Vermont, New Hampshire, and in Maine has just, they, they've been the friendliest people they have been so nice. I think I actually commented when we were in Vermont that these people are even nicer than Ohioans, which I, sorry, <laughs> sorry, Ohio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, we, we're, we're glad to be here, enjoying our time. But this show is not about our vacation because that's like, hey, look at our family pictures that we did on vacation. Yeah, that's cares. not what it's about. It just, you know, we just wanted to catch up that if you, we are sitting we're sitting in the middle of a campground with all our windows so open. So if you hear large trucks, if you hear children. Dogs. Dogs, wind rustling. Moose. Moose. Bear. Maybe a bear and porcupines. Oh, yeah. I don't know what sound porcupines make, but and, we'll, we'll let you know if one comes up. And possibly rabid raccoons. Yeah, there's a tra- like an advisory around here that there's uh, the raccoons around here have rabies. So Yeah, anyway. so Kim, what are we talking about today? We are talking about bluegrass, um, a subject the music, near, not, not the grass in Kentucky. Yeah, a subject near and dear to your heart. Oh, Steve. I thought you liked it too. I do, but you are the you are the one that plays bluegrass. You are the one that has the custom Weber mandolin and all of the things. And I do like bluegrass. I'll, you know what I'm going to say. I like all genres of music. You do, as long as they're played well. Yeah. I mean, we have been to the Grand Ole Opry. And while I don't sit and listen to, like, Western swing or anything like that, I do appreciate when there are artists that can play it and play it well to preserve that heritage. I am glad that we have that on record, that you like all kinds of music if they're done well, because um, next month we are going... I'm, I'm doing the editing, so... Next <laughs> month... Cut that out. Next month we're going to go see a band called The Who, H-U. They're from Mongolia, and they play um, traditional Mongolian instruments and do like Mongolian throat singing, but it's it's like heavy metal. Explain <laughs> Mongolian throat singing. I, I don't know what that is. I can't really it's um I can't really explain it. Go so like I said the band is called the Who H U. Um their first album just came out. You can find them on all the things. Go Google them. But it's it basically is it's like singing like way deep down in your throat. It's almost like a growl, like a guttural but it's we, we've heard traditional, Rupert do that a couple times. Yeah, it's, it's tr- a traditional Mongolian type of music. As and he's you, saved us from bears in the woods. And you're going to go see them. So I'm curious to see if you if you still are a fan of all genres of music after. <laughs> no, I am. I am. But, you know, bluegrass is one of the true American genres of music created right here with lots of roots it, that it go really back is. to Europe and ties to Africa and all over the place. Yeah, and that's what... Um, 
what I'm going to talk about. So we kind of broke it down um, as far as research is concerned. Uh, you have what a hit, like a timeline? Is that what you're kind of going to yeah, be talking about? Kind of. How do, do you want to start? How do you want to start? Do you want to start with? Uh, Why don't you go ahead and start with the instrumental? The instrumental. Okay, so and then I'll move on into like right, the yeah, artist and, and the history of bluegrass. And, and there may be about. some overlap. Yeah, um, so you may interject every once in a while. So. Um, Bluegrass kind of sort of started um, with immigrants from Ireland, Scotland, England uh, in the 1600s. And really kind of the the instrument that started bluegrass was the violin, or as it's commonly known in bluegrass circles, the fiddle. Um, so the it, it's kind of a... Uh, Wait, let's clarify. What is the difference between the violin and the fiddle? Well, are you playing it to sound fancy or are you playing it to sound fun? Because <laughs> I think that's really the only difference. Mechanically, there they're is the no same. difference. They are the same. Is, it's, it's just the way that you play it, the kind the of music that, you that you're making. Um, the, the, the awesome sounds that come out of yeah, it. I, yeah. So, and I love, I don't know, we'll maybe get into this a little bit. I love the story of the Scotch-Irish um, and Kentucky... Uh, kind of coal miners. So um, the Scots fled to, now way back like in the 15, 1600s, the Scots fled to Ireland for a lot of the same reasons that coal mining became what it is here in America. Um, Landlords were able to buy large tracts of land from the Scottish crown uh, and farms that had been in families for generations were lost um, because the farmers just, basically couldn't afford to pay the rent on their own land that had been sold out from under them. What about the potato famine? That's, we're, we're talking about the Scotch. Oh, the Scottish, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, Ireland, Scotland. Yeah, and, well, and so a lot of the Scottish uh, moved to Ireland during that period of time. But when I was doing this research, it really reminded me a lot of the research that we've done on Harlan County and the way that um, kind of with first the logging industry and then the coal industry uh, back in, what was it, the 1700s, I think. So not too far removed from this period of time, the same thing was happening in America where um, companies were buying large parcels of land that the that kind of illiterate farmers um, that had never really needed to learn how to properly read and write, you know, from an... Um, academic standpoint where they couldn't prove that they own the land. Hmm. So the companies would just go buy out their land and then the farm and charge the farmers like an exorbitant amount of rent. Uh, and they were unable to farm anymore. And that's when they became laborers and, and um, coal miners and loggers and so on and so forth. So there are kind of a lot of parallels um, between the Scottish who fled to Ireland and um, the farmers in the Kentucky, West Virginia area. Well, if you go and you listen to, I mean, like you've said, Ireland, Scotland, and England, they bring the basic, the original style mm-hmm. of bluegrass is what we know it today. Yeah. I mean, there, there are changes, was, and I'll discuss that when we start talking yeah, about Lester Flatt. It just kind of made Scruggs, me sad, but, though, because, like, they, so they fled to, the Scottish fled to Ireland, um, and then the Scotch-Irish... Then I mean they commingled and married, intermarried. The Scots married the Irish, and so on and so Thank forth. Thank goodness, and then, because I got my DNA test. Yep, and then uh, they left Ireland because of some religious strife that's still an issue today, back and forth between the Protestants and the Catholics. But it just made me really sad for them. Like the original Scots fled to Ireland because they couldn't afford to live there and then or live in Scotland anymore because their land had been sold out from under them. And then they immigrate to America. And the same thing happens. They buy land in America and then end up losing it for the same reasons that they lost their land in Scotland. Well, a lot of the original music that came over, it was songs about the day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of it had to do with living in remote areas, farming in the hills, life in the hills, life, you know, that agricultural... Not not the big city life. That's what they knew. And that's what they brought over. Um. So that that was kind of the the violin, the fiddle. A lot of the immigrants came to um, Pennsylvania, but Pennsylvania quickly became very crowded, and they were convinced to move south by agents um, from North agents. Carolina. Yeah, North Carolina. Seven type agent or what Virginia. kind of agent? 
Presumably, some of them were agents for these coal companies, um, logging companies, um, maybe just from, I don't know, like basically whatever the Bureau of Land Management was back in the day in the 1600s, 1700s. Obviously, it wasn't the BLM, but just, you know, they wanted settlers to come a little bit further south. Um, And so they, they moved. Down south into What's North Carolina, West Virginia. What's the Disney song from Pocahontas? Pocahontas, just around the river bend. River no, 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 the, the land company. Oh, the Virginia company? The Virgi- yeah. The Virginia yeah. company. Yeah. So they, Those they, guys. They, yeah, so, they, uh, so the Scotch-Irish are the ones that brought over the violin, the fiddle. Uh, and then, so that was kind of the beginning of the bluegrass sound. But, yeah, I mean, originally this music was referred to as mountain music. Yeah, or string music. A lot of it was yeah. they called it string bands. You know, we we've heard music, like we we've been to um, a reenactment at Gettysburg and mm-hmm. the Virginia reels. While not technically bluegrass, it has that feel. It has that yeah, sound. Yeah, you can hear this a lot the of music the music that was brought over. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so so that was the fiddle. So for our purposes, we're gonna say that kind of the crucial bluegrass instruments are the fiddle, the banjo the guitar, and the mandolin. you got to have the bass. You you do have to have the bass. Now, I'm not going to talk specifically about the bass because the bass sort of... Well, you got to have the bass because that's what one of the highlights of bluegrass music is that off no, beat. So you you're, need the you're totally right. But the, the bass guitar or the upright bass didn't really necessarily come over. It just sort of evolved from... The bass, the bass fiddle. The bass fiddle. So yeah. it, it evolved from these other instruments, from the guitar, from like the jugs. I mean, back then, the like, true bass is a jug. I'll bet you Beethoven never uh, envisioned probably the bass not. playing bluegrass music like, like we know it now. He probably never imagined like heavy metal music either. <laughs> probably, probably not. Um, so we had the, the origins kind of with the violin, the fiddle. Um, and then... Uh, the banjo, um, sort Love of became banjo. the next. Sort of became the next instrument uh, in the bluegrass sound, and for a long time, it was just the fiddle and the banjo. Um, banjos. I don't know if a lot of people know this. Um, banjo actually is from Africa. It was brought over with African slaves, um, and originally, banjos were made out of gourds um, and had four strings. So originally, a banjo was more like a bass. It had a much deeper sound. It only had four strings. And because of the gourds, it had that hollow back, um, like hollow rounded back. And so it had a lot deeper sound as opposed to what we think of as a traditional, like as a banjo now, which has that higher tinnier sound. It wasn't always like that. It was much more of sort of a bass instrument. Hmm. Um, and in, here we go, this word, Appalachia. We'll, we'll argue over that another time. Is it Appalachia? Appalachia? What is it? I say Appalachia. We'll say the mountains. In the mountains. Banjo heads were actually made out of groundhog skins. So the, originally they were made from gourds, and then in the mountains um, they were made from groundhog skins. There are no shortage of groundhogs. Oh, my gosh. There's so many groundhogs. So I have a friend in Australia called Neil, and Neil came over to a course one time, and we're driving around, and... Fort Belvoir, Virginia, there's tons, hordes, hordes, is that what you call armies them? of groundhogs. <laughs> and Neil had never seen a groundhog. And I guess they don't have well, groundhogs in Australia. Like a, but we don't have Tasmanian devils here either. No, but don't they have, isn't it, is it quokka? kangaroos. A quokka, I think is what it's called. And it's like, it's sort of a groundhog-like animal, I think in Australia, I think it's spelled like Q or K U O A K K A or something like that. Like I don't a know. Quokka. Um, I, they have one at the Boonshaw Museum. All I know <laughs> is it. Neil didn't know what a groundhog was. He was amazed by him. They're, they're, I mean, they're not. They're everywhere. They they are everywhere. They're really cute. They're kind of destructive, but they're really cute. Um, so so it's okay that they made them banjo heads out of groundhog skins because for every groundhog that you kill for banjo, five more pop up to take its place. <laughs> Um, banjos kind of began to become a more... So you're saying there's no shortage of banjos? Banjo hide? No, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think they're made out banjo. of groundhog anymore, no. but... Um, and later on, they were made out of, like... I've seen banjos made out of everything, like cereal boxes. 
Um, my great grandfather. We have this. We have. Yeah, we, seen we it. have one that he made it out of like a, a coffee can. Yeah, and I've he, seen banjos he, he, he made out of some really cool stuff. Happy Spears. He yeah. made it, he made it out, and he would play it. Yeah. Yeah. So banjos are. I, I think banjos are a neat instrument because you can make it really out of anything from gourds to coffee cans to groundhogs to whatever you want to make your banjo right. out of. A little off topic. There's a a story we could do one time. Happy Spears. All right. Spent uh, actually spent the night with Devil Ants. We could tell some stories about your grandfather's Dan Harmon and how he lost his arm and like yeah, Happy Spears and spending the night with Devil Ants Hatfield. Okay, rain it back in. Back, back to <laughs> we can tell stories all day. Um, so in the 1840s, banjos began to be more common um, because you saw them a lot during traveling minstrel shows. Um, and the first recorded instance of a fiddle and banjo together was in 1847. Now, do you are you familiar with minstrel shows? Do you know what they are? Yes. Okay. Should we talk don't. about them anyway? Do we assume no, that everybody knows? No, or go ahead. Explain okay. It. So, minstrel shows. Now, bear in mind this is the 1840s. Um, so, you know, slavery was still. Wait, you said an it was the first recorded. How were they recording? Not, not recorded like. Not like a recording, like a music recording, but like first recorded, like like somebody first wrote play. down that they saw ah, okay. a fiddle gotcha. and a banjo. Like so, not like a oh, recorded okay. instrument, not not that kind of recording. First noted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's okay. better. Yeah. Um. So 1840s, you know, slavery still a thing. I'm wondering, they use CD or? Oh my gosh, Steve! Eight, stop eight, getting off topic. Probably eight track. <sighs> Go ahead. Minstrel shows. <laughs> were not funny at all. I'm not laughing at that. I'm laughing at you. Um, minstrel shows were primarily uh, white performers uh, in blackface, and they were very exaggerated um, portrayals of African-American people. Um, generally, black people in minstrel shows were portrayed as um, lazy, um, Stupid, superstitious, very happy-go-lucky, sort of just childlike. Very much the stereotype of a slave. Yeah, very negative. I mean, super offensive by today's standards. Um, just very, very negative. They, you, I'm sure you guys have seen the pictures of like they would um, paint their faces and their like their hands and stuff black, and then super exaggerate, outline their lips in red. And, and so um, those are minstrel shows and they were comic stick skits, variety acts, dancing, musical performances. Some shows had African-American performers, but they were absolutely under the direction of white people. Um, so it's not like black minstrel shows were owned by blacks and made money. And no, absolutely not. Um, they were probably, I'm sure, a step up from slavery for the African-American performers um, because, you know, they weren't laboring in the fields, but they didn't get to keep their earnings at all. They were working. It, it was sort of like entertainment slavery, if nothing else. Um, so that's that's where the banjo kind of got to be heard a little bit more, um, paired with a fiddle, and that was early, early. That's the string bands that you hear about. Um, that was kind of the forerunner to bluegrass. Of course, you can't have a bluegrass band without a guitar. Um, and the guitar has been around for a while. In fact, Ben Franklin played an early version of the guitar. Did you know that? I did not know. I didn't know that either. Um, Spanish settlers brought over a guitar. A penny saved was a penny earned. And bought a guitar with it. And brought a guitar with it. <laughs> the guitar actually came over around the same time that the um, fiddle did. Um, but the Spanish settlers were the ones that brought over a guitar, but it it was um, more of like a classic guitar. It had five sets of double strings, so ten strings. So ten strings, kind of like uh, kind of like what you envision a mandolin, like today. So so how sometimes the mandolin that mandolin has, can be a pain to tune. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. So kind of how the mandolin has four sets of double strings. The guitar had five sets of double strings. Um, by 1800, the sixth string that we know uh, was around, and the first known instruction book was published in 1816. So um, the guitars were brought over in the 1600s, the early version brought over by the Spanish settlers. Uh, ben Franklin had one. Um, 1816, first known instruction book of the guitar in America. Our, dare I say, favorite guitar manufacturer, founded in 1833, C.F. Martin & Company. Um, Gotta love that Martin guitar. 
Gibson makes a mighty fine guitar too. A lot of companies do. Gibson but, came around uh, considerably later, almost fifty years later after Martin. Yeah. Uh, in eighteen ninety four. Yep. And Sears. There, there's some instruments that are just established in the industry that bluegrass. I mean, typically you're going to hear Martin guitar associated with bluegrass music. A um, a Gibson mandolin. A Gibson mandolin, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. Yeah, and. A, Gibson banjos. Yeah. Yeah. Gibson, yeah. Yeah. Early Gibson banjos. Gibson banjos are not, um, I don't want to say they're not as prestigious because they still are. I mean, Gibson is a very prestigious name, but they are made a little differently than they were in the early days. So they're not, um, It it's a little bit more of a competitive industry, I think, in the band. If you look at all industry. the big bluegrass bands, they're playing Gibson banjos. Is it still a Gibson? It, it's still a Gibson. I don't know much about banjo manufacturing. I just know banjo history. Um, all right, so the guitars. Um, in country and bluegrass music, guitars were more rhythmic. So the guitar almost took the place. So um, once that banjo kind of... Uh, started tuning up a little bit and getting away from the gourd, like the deep gourd sound. Um, then the guitar kind of picked up that the rhythm that the banjo w- was keeping. Um, well, the 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 style of bluegrass that most people are going to associate now is the three finger roll and picking, for the and that banjo or guitar for the for the banjo, and that yeah. wasn't a thing back then, right? Um, so in 1927, uh, Maybell Carter kind of changed the way that guitar had been played in country and bluegrass music. Up until that point, um, it was played sort of as a more rhythmic sound. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't a lead. There was not. Can you a, hum a few lines? Of what? A rhythmic sound. No, I'm not a musician. Okay. I'm a podcast host. Um, <laughs> in so 1927. Uh, Maybell Carter kind of invented the, the Carter scratch, which is the melody is on the bass strings of the guitar, and then you kind of brush the higher strings for the rhythm. So you're playing a melody and rhythm at the same time as opposed to just rhythm, which is what up until 1927-ish um, had the guitar had been used for. A lot of different styles are brought into music, and oh, especially into bluegrass. And, that, and, and that's what, um, you know, you're right, that bluegrass is is an American style of music because you have instruments from... Uh, Ireland, Scotland, um, you have instruments from Spain, you have instruments from Africa, um, and the mandolin actually is one of, one of, if maybe not the oldest recorded instrument, I would say that was probably the drum, but it is one of the, it is probably the oldest recorded string instrument. Um, Mandolin-like lutes can be traced back to 2000 BC in Mesopotamia. Wow. So Jesus might have played a mandolin. He might have. Honest, or like some, um, a mandolin, like he a lute. probably heard it. A, yeah, I'm sure yeah. he probably did. A lute, which is very similar to a mandolin. Um, like the guitar uh, and the fiddle, um, it came over from Europe in the 1600s. Mandolins came from like se- Southern and Eastern Europe. So you had it like Spain and Italy, but then you also had like the Romanians bring mandolin um, over when they came over in the 1600s. And uh, mandolin... Mandolin became really popular in the 1850s. It was actually kind of one of those things that like people just kind of goofed around with. Like you just kind of like what you do. Like you just sit around and just pluck at it. Yeah. When you're sitting around with nothing else to do. Um, and that aggravates Kim. But oh if you really God. want to aggravate her, if I get my banjo out because it's, it's a lot louder. So loud. No, what aggravates me? It doesn't bother. There are two things that aggravate me when you play. Two things? No, the two things that the two things that really aggravate me when you play is when you just pick the same thing over and over and over and over again. Which I understand. That's how you practice. That's how you get good. I get it. It just is annoying. And the other thing that drives me insane. So, I should say, we are here in Maine celebrating our fifteenth anniversary. Like that's why we're here is this week we've been married for 15 years. So over 15 years, I'm sure there's a lot of things that we do to annoy each other. <laughs> but my number one <laughs> thing that you do that drives me insane. Am I going to have to edit this? No, I don't think so. Because you know, what do you think is the number one thing that drives me insane? Oh, I know what it is. What you, <laughs> you will talk to me and you'll think I'm not listening. Oh, it's so disrespectful. <laughs> so disrespectful. But I hear you. 
I will be talking to him and he's staring out into space with a blank look on his face, just picking away at whatever instrument happens to be in okay. his hands. And he when doesn't stop. When I'm staring stop. off into space, I'm concentrating. He doesn't stop. He doesn't make eye contact. He just <laughs> stares say, blankly into space, and picking at say, whatever's in his hand. It's, it's just as aggravating when I'm <laughs> concentrating so hard and you talk to me about something. Oh, my gosh. But enough of that. Welcome to my life. <laughs> this is what the last 15 years has been like. Anyway... Mandolins became very popular in the 1850s, um, but actually, uh, we mentioned Gibson. Orville Gibson basically is the one that invented the current version of the mandolin um, back in 1905. So originally, mandolins um, had been sort of more like the old school banjo or like an ovation guitar. It had a rounded back. It was more like a lute. Um, so, like, when you see a lot of times in, like, medieval paintings and stuff, you'll yep. see a guy playing what looks like a mandolin that's actually a lute. It's got that, like, hollow sound. It's got a curved back. And Orville Gibson was the one that uh, made a lot a- of A lot of early mandolins were made out of gourds, too. Yeah. Orville Gibson was the one that made the flatback mandolin based on uh, concepts of violin construction. Plus, plus flair. He was kind of obsessed with ornamentation and making pretty instruments. So Orville Gibson was the one that did the, that's the responsible for the F style, like the little swoop and, um, and, and a lot of the old school Gibson mandolins too are sort of known for their beautiful, like mother pearl inlays and just like gold inlays and silver. It's old Gibsons are really, really pretty mandolins. And that's because Orville Gibson liked, pretty things, I guess. Like he was kind of, that was his thing was, um, he really liked to make, uh, not just a quality instrument, but a really good looking instrument too. Um, and so that was, you know, 1905 when the flatback came out and Bill Monroe was really the one who made mandolin this, a standard in bluegrass until then it was just kind of an extra bonus. Um, well, we had, a, a band director at one point in time, and one of the bands that you were in that kind of, and I, we, we talk about this sometimes and it really, I like the way that he phrased it. He said, when you're in a band, um, like in bluegrass, you've got your, it's like a pie. Like you've got your, like it was a pie. your bass is the crust, your guitar, what I would say probably guitar and banjo are your filling. And then your mandolin is your whip topping. Yeah. And, and your fiddle fiddle, I would say is probably in the middle there too. Yeah. Middle slightly topping. Um, so the mandolin up until Bill Monroe came along was just sort of the icing. It was extra, but it wasn't necessary. Now you you really can't have a bluegrass band without a mandolin player. No, you gotta you gotta have those five basic instruments. I mean, when I you have to you, you need yeah you need I've, the bass, you need the guitar, you need the the banjo, the mandolin. You sometimes and you need a don't have fiddle. a fiddle. Sometimes you don't have a fiddle. Sometimes you don't have a fiddle. But good you, fiddle players are hard to find. They, it's it's a tricky instrument. Yeah. Especially because most people, when they learn on the fiddle, they don't learn on the fiddle. They learn on the violin, and so you have to overcome that classical training to get into sort of. You know a, I might disagree with that because the the people who are in the bluegrass, they a lot of bluegrass, and I, I shouldn't say that because a lot of people do have formal training. But a lot of bluegrass... It is just handed down. You're it, right. It's just handed down. And so it's like um, my grandfather. Um, and this was a very common way of yeah, learning. There, there, were, there were nine boys in the family. They had their own baseball team. And um, Friday, Saturday night, they would just sit around and my great-grandfather would make them play and they would finish a song and then they would pass the instrument to the right. Yeah, and that's actually, I've heard of um, a lot of, so uh, one of our favorite artists is a young lady by the name of Lily May, uh, and she, her father played bass for Bill Monroe for a while, and that's how Lily May and her siblings um, learned to play instruments. Lily May and Scarlett and Frank and, um, oh, I'm forgetting her sister's name, but they all, they all did that. They, like, yeah. passed around ma- instruments, and I think that's how a lot of the greats kind of learned how to well you mentioned the uh bill monroe so what what happened what father of bluegrass the father of bluegrass right there commonly known as the father of bluegrass so bill and his brother charlie were were just playing back you know in the in the 30s and they would just play music you know at that time i guess it would have been called mountain music now do you know what i know bill monroe played mandolin do you know what charlie played commonly guitar guitar okay yeah 
And so they were they were a popular band themselves back in the 1930s. Not necessarily bluegrass, but mountain music. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, they split up, and each one of them formed their own bands. Bill, okay, they were they were from Kentucky, so Bill went ahead, and um, he he named his band the um, the Bluegrass Boys because Kentucky being the bluegrass state, and he started a new form of traditional music, is what we know today as bluegrass music, and mm-hmm. so he. And, and Bill is generally known as the father of bluegrass music. But back in 1939, Bill got on uh, the Grand Ole Opry with WSM Radio in Nashville, Tennessee. And he brought off, he, he started to perform this. Now, bluegrass is known for some very distinctive sounds. It's Traditionally, it's going to be acoustic instruments, mm-hmm. uh, distinctive high vocal harmonies. And it's, it's kind of known now as the high lonesome sound. And Bill Monroe was the one that, that oh, ushered this yeah. in and brought that all about. And um, so he started touring and doing that. So bluegrass, you know, now we have radio that helps spread the music and stuff like that. But in 1945, Earl Scruggs joined the band. And Earl played the um, the banjo. Now, up until now, the banjo wasn't played like we know a lot of it today. Claw, claw hammer. hammer. A lot of right. it was claw hammer. Bill introduced the... Th- <laughs> The three-finger roll. Okay, and there's the dog <laughs> we're talking about. Okay, I about jumped because they've been pretty quiet. But Bill introduced, you know what, I'm not even going to edit that out. No, it's fine. No. We warned you. Jack Jack wanted to be on the podcast, too. But if he starts barking more, we're going to have to. So he, he introduced the three-finger roll, and that changed everything. Brought on the drive and the energy that we associate with bluegrass music that we hear today. Some of the other early influencers of bluegrass music was Chubby Wise playing the fiddle, Howard Watts playing the bass, and he would also play the guitar. And they kind of took what Bill Monroe started and is the father of bluegrass music and continued to develop bluegrass into what we know as bluegrass music today. Yeah. So Lester and Earl, they went off and they formed their own band. And... The um, the Dobro was introduced into their band, too. There was a guy named Uncle Josh Graves. So he heard um, Scruggs' three-finger banjo picking, and he said, you know what, I think I can do that on the Dobro, too. And so he wrote, brought the Dobro, and Which he started doing that. Beautiful. I love Dobro music. Oh, yeah. It really adds a lot to bluegrass. It's got the right sound. It's mm-hmm. got that lonesome little yeah. sound to it that brings a lot. So at, pretty. For the right song, it just adds so much to bluegrass music. But anyway, he adopted the dobro and brought that into uh, bluegrass music. So between 1948 and 1969, Lester and Earl, they, they brought bluegrass music to America. But now we have TV, we have radio. They brought it to the college campuses, campuses, the coffee shops, and there was kind of a counterculture. Hippies, back in the 60s, hippies loved bluegrass music. And... Um, I don't know. I guess it was some of that folk. It had yeah, the folk like sound. The Americana and- yeah, and so they brought that out there. So you know, you'd look at Lester Flat and Earl Scruggs. They were playing in these little coffee shops in San Francisco, and the, the Which hippies. Which is not what you would expect. No, I, that's not what I think of it when I think of bluegrass. But but you know, when I think of bluegrass, I kind of do though. Like you, yeah, they get it, along with everybody. It fits. Yeah, it, it does. And so they brought it. They brought it there, and like I said, the hippies loved it. So, like, some of the songs that were brought out that I think most people are going to be familiar with are, if, if you've seen the movie Bonnie and Clyde, you've heard Foggy Mountain Breakdown. It's a good song. Yeah, and that's that... Hard song. I that, can't imagine trying to play that. It's fast. And, and that's that drive and the energy that uh, the banjo can bring to yeah. the music. And that's what, I mean, it's, it's, ban- it's a banjo song. Yeah. Yeah. And then, if you ever watched the Andy Griffith show, you've uh, probably seen... The Darlings singing a song called Dooley. Now, it's a classic. Which, yeah, it's a classic. It's about, about moonshiners. It's about a moonshiner. So if you want to hear bluegrass, you're going to hear moonshine and death. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's not old, always happy, uplifting death, music. Death. Not always. The awful, dreadful snake. The awful, dreadful snake. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? It's, it's about life. It, it was, is. It was about hard life. It was a hard life back then. Now, the Dooleys, that was their stage name on the Andy Griffith show. 
their actual names were Doug and Rodney Dillard, and they're the ones that recorded. Um, it's them on the show, but they they were called the Dooleys, but they're the, actual the Dillards. Names, they were actually called the Dillards. Yeah. Now, if you are from Tennessee, if you want to see somebody from <laughs> Tennessee stand up, place their hand over their heart, and and cry. Play Rocky Top. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. The University Tennessee of, National Anthem. Yeah. Yeah. University of Tennessee. They'll, I think they probably played before the National Anthem. Yeah. I, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. But then during the 60s, you started to see bluegrass festivals and they became more and more popular. Think of a bluegrass festival as Woodstock, except, yeah. except they're playing bluegrass music. And like, if you go, to, well, like, what are some of the popular ones right well, now? Yeah, you got, like, Poppy Mountain down Poppy in, Mountain in Moorhead, Kentucky. Kentucky. Moorhead, uh, which, uh, shout out to Moorhead. If you want to learn more about bluegrass, Moorhead, Kentucky uh, State University has a great bluegrass program. Uh, you can do a lot of research there. Um, a lot of history and yeah, documentation. Absolutely. Um, Poppy Mountain, uh, Bean Blossom over in Indiana. I believe Moorhead's project was they went out and they recorded as much original mountain Bluegrass, folk yeah, music Moorhead's really—it's yeah. a really good resource. Um, in Southern Ohio, you have the Southern Ohio Indoor Music Festival with, um, led by Joe Mullins, and the Radio Ramblers, and the Radio Ramblers. Yep, and he brings in some of the big names there in Wilmington, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Every actually twice a year. Uh, yeah, there's uh, I think spring and fall. Spring and fall. Yep. It's a really good show if you get the chance to go see that. Uh, Steve has been to a version of a bluegrass festival called a Pickin' Party. You want to tell that story? Yeah. Okay. So I had to go on temporary duty to Fort Monroe, Virginia. And um, I took my mandolin with me because in the evening I'd sit in my hotel room and I didn't want to aggravate Kim. Oh, my gosh. Here we <laughs> and go. So I would, but I didn't want to aggravate my neighbors in the hotel either. <laughs> but I can make the mandolin play fairly quietly. So anyway, I, I took my mandolin with me as I'm going. Kim said, you will not see a banjo picker within 100 miles of Norfolk, Virginia. I said, yeah, I know, but, you know, that's not the point. So I get there. I'm walking to the door of my hotel. Now, bluegrass people, they can recognize other bluegrass people. I see this mm-hmm. guy walking in, and he's carrying this beat-up old guitar case. I said, you play bluegrass? He goes, son, you don't know what's going on here, do you? I said, no, I don't. He goes, well, let me tell you. And at the hotel across the the parking lot, another hotel, they had the Virginia picking party. Now that, you know, Peter Piper pecked a peck of pickled peppers. Okay, so a picking party. So how do you describe this? There were hundreds of bluegrass players there. Uh, I don't think there was anybody famous. I mean, probably local famous, Virginia famous. But in every little nook and cranny of that hotel, there were people playing. I mean, in rooms, in hallways, in different, uh, in the restaurant. I mean, there might be one band group, I won't say a band, one group of people playing here. And 20 feet away, there'd be another group of people playing. I can imagine. It's probably so loud. Yeah, it was. But it was all good <laughs> oh, good, I'm sure it was great. Bluegrass. I'm sure it was wonderful, but I, I can imagine it was. Totally I ended super up. Loud. I played so much that weekend. It, it was the type of thing where you could just go in and step up and start playing, and you they would were scoot over. In heaven, I played so much. I wore the calluses off my finger. Yeah, I yeah, remember. it was. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, bluegrass music is awesome. The people are awesome to play it. I mean, it's known for the harmonies. The, the freestyle of music. But you know what, Kim? Bluegrass is very complicated music to play. It, it is hard music. I don't even play an instrument, and I can tell you just from listen. I mean, you just listen to bluegrass, and you can tell that it's complicated and complex, and it, has, it can be a little difficult. I mean, in, in other bands, the drummer, he's, yeah. he's doing a lot of stuff. And in bluegrass... Everybody it's, has to carry their own weight yeah, in bluegrass. It's yeah. not like one. And with all music. Uh, yeah, obviously. Yeah. But uh, it's like you said, like a lot of times the drummer is the one that has to really be focused on um, because the, the drummer is the one that keeps the beat and the drummer is the one that kind of keeps yeah. everybody on track, but not so in bluegrass. Well, yeah, you have the bass, which was the crust, and then you have the mandolin, and that's how you get the offbeat. And then you have the guitar who's playing the rhythm. But um, it's... Just to, to play the banjo, there, 
the the three finger roll. Oh yeah. There are forward rolls, the reverse rolls, the scrugs roll. Crazy. There's just different ways to uh, to play the banjo, and you have to be you know to do it. You have to be able to do it well. It takes a lot of dexterity, and just there's some complex chord changes in bluegrass music. I mean, basically oh, yeah. it's G C D and E minor, or you know the same version in A or B or B flat or something like that. But you know that's that's just how it works. The typical bluegrass song, you're going to hear the intro, which is going to be instrumental. You're going to hear the verse, the chorus. But then each instrument is going to take a lead and play like a little lick after the chorus. So you're going to sing the, you're going to sing the chorus, and then maybe the violin will go through and play its little thing. Then, then you know, you'll do the verse, the chorus, and then the mandolin. And it, then you'll do it again, and then the banjo. And you'll just do that. So until everybody you, gets a turn. Everybody gets a turn, and it's, it's, it's sharing. Sharing is it's, caring. Yeah, so you repeat until you run out of verses or you run out of instruments. Or, or your everyone, fingers fall off. Or your fingers <laughs> fall off, but, and then you end it. Usually and then you're some, done. And then you're done. No and more fingers. No That's more where fingers the claw hammer banjo off. came in. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it really is fun to play. But I'll say one thing, too. That bluegrass music is very regional. There's the the big songs that everyone knows, but as you travel around, there there are songs that are more popular in a certain yeah, region. So like when so, I was in Virginia, they were playing songs that I didn't know. Now yeah, it's and easy like to jump my, in and, and play with them. Yeah, like my favorite bluegrass song is Katie Daly. But even when we have been like in Nashville and we've asked um, Nashvilleians to play Katie Daly, um, bluegrass musicians to play Katie Daly. They're like, oh, we don't really know that one. And someone like, well, I know it. And then they'll like huddle for a couple minutes. And they'll figure it out. And they'll figure it out. But yeah, that just but, goes to talk about the talent oh, yeah. that people have. And not just with bluegrass music. People are amazing oh, with yeah. what they can do. Oh, Instrumentally, yeah. vocally, artistically. People, Absolutely. People are amazing. But one of the cool things about bluegrass music is that you still have the early people who are there. Okay. Yeah, now, because it's Ralph, not Ralph a, Stanley has passed. Yeah. But we have Del McCurry. Del, and Del is one of those people who plays with like everybody. So he's very He just recorded with Joe Mullins in the radio. Yeah. That's, that's he what did. they were in their IMBA with. Oh, okay. Um he is and I think he takes that responsibility very seriously and recognizes that it is a, a fledgling pretty young form of music and that it's time to pass on to that next generation like you need to instill in in them as much as you can. But it, it's still such a small community and it's it's not name dropping but I have played with people I haven't played with like Ralph Stanley or Del McCurry, Maybe but I have, but I have, have, I have played with people that have, right, and that's what really makes bluegrass so because it's such a new form of music. Mm-hmm. Like these legends are still out there and they're still playing, and you can go see them. Yeah, Google, Google them up; they're out there, and I would encourage you to do that. Oh, absolutely! Just as as a part of history, that, and, and they're also friendly. Like you, you can go up to any of these guys if you can get. I don't want to say backstage. Or where, you wherever. have to go and backstage. Then, like you can go up and talk to Ricky Skaggs during, like, while well, he's tuning before the show. Yeah, like it's not a big deal. Yeah, they're, it's they're really laid back. Yeah, very very nice people. Down to earth people. Now, traditional. Okay, we started off with the mountain music, and then you have like uh, we'll call it the traditional music, which is Ralph, uh, Ralph Stanley. Um, Bill Monroe. Bill Monroe, Earl Skaggs. Skaggs, I'm thinking of... Ricky Skaggs, Earl Skaggs. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) those guys. Okay, you do that. And then you have... um, There's a new grass that's coming on. Now, if you want to hear something fun, listen to ACDC. Oh, Hacy Dixie. Hacy Dixie, yeah. Is a good one. And then there are some that, like, straddle... Because I think Alison Krauss... Yeah. Kind of straddles both genres. She does some pretty traditional stuff, but then she also does a, a lot of new grass sound too. Yeah. And that's what out there. So it's the music is evolving. It's but it's just like rock and roll. Oh yeah. It it it's evolving and it's still out there. And then there's the other form of bluegrass music which is bluegrass gospel. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't go to a bluegrass show 
it doesn't matter if it's traditional grass, oh, bluegrass, yeah. they're going to sing some gospel songs. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and it's not uncommon to find gospel albums from big name bluegrass. Yeah. They'll, I mean, they've all, pretty much everybody's done a, a gospel bluegrass album. Now, like, okay, we were talking about, like, the different generations. So some of the first generation of bluegrass are going to be guys like Bill Monroe, the Stanley Brothers, Flatten Scruggs, Reno and Smiley, Jim and Jesse, and uh, Jimmy Martin and the Osborne Brothers. Mm -hmm. Those guys are considered, yeah, Rocky Top. Yep. Okay, so those guys, they're considered first generation. But then you have second generation, which are guys like uh, Doc Watson, J.D. Crow, Sam Bush, Del McCurry is considered second generation, even though he played with some of these other folks it's early interesting. on. Yeah. yeah as, as bands moved on. Right. Dale is considered second generation. Then you have third generation, which came about like in the eighties. And these guys kind of redefined bluegrass. Cause we said traditionally bluegrass is acoustic music, but as the eighties came along, you had the microchip, you had all these different mm-hmm. ways to record. And so like I said, they've kind of redefined bluegrass. They've brought on a uh, better quality of instrument sound, um, individual microphones. Oh, yeah. Yep, the individual microphones, the electric bass. So now in some of the new grass, you may not see that stand-up bass. You're going to see the electric bass being played, and that's okay. And they're gonna, you're going to see some non-traditional chord progressions. But um, this generation, though, they're bringing back the original songs, traditional grass played in the new style. I've and, actually even heard some bluegrass bands with drums. Like, they're few and far between, but there are a couple of them out there. Well, it's not a big drum set. No, 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 no. I'm talking, <laughs> we're, like, talking, like, three drums. Like, yeah. a, a bass and a snare and maybe, like, a cymbal, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> like, maybe a cymbal like that. But you know what, Kim? Bluegrass is international. Well, yeah, you have the ICBMAs, like, the yeah. international bluegrass, like... Do you know that during the 60s, and still maybe, Japanese people loved bluegrass music? I did not know that. No, the, the big guys, like J.D. Crow, Flatten Scruggs, Bill Monroe, they have toured Japan many, you know many... What? Actually, I think I did hear a recording. I forget who yeah, it, was. it was. We heard it, was it on, on satellite radio or something? We Wait, heard a recording of like... radio, yeah. Who was that? Was that Ralph Stanley? It was Ralph Stanley. Dr. Ralph was playing, it was a record. Yeah, I remember that. And he was like super excited and the crowd was like lit up. Like you could hear them cheering and but what's, just... Yeah. What, what's really interesting though with this is the Japanese bluegrass players, the bands, they did it just like my relatives did. They learned it by ear. There was no oh, formal cool. training. They, they just learned it by ear. And um, they pronounced everything phonetically. And so I would like to dig in and hear some... Some tr- traditional Japanese bluegrass? I, I wish that we had the... Uh, we, we've, we've said this before. We, we're very strong about copyright. Yeah. And it, we, we could buy a license that we could play music. And this episode would have been really good if we could have given some examples. But we can't play the music because we're not going to violate copyright rules. Uh, and yeah. you hear Rolling Thunder going by yes, right now. We, yeah. Um, there is, uh, there are a whole bunch of motorcycles pulling into the campground um, for a special event uh, that's going on today that we're actually going to be recording um, for a special episode uh, later on. We're, we're not going to really get into it on this show, but so all of this noise that you're hearing in the background is a whole bunch of bikes. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and in England. So these guys have toured Japan, England. They've, they've toured internationally. And it's, um, I don't know, bluegrass is fun. It's a traditional American style of music. It's purely, it's a very American. Because, I mean, you look at, you've got, it, it's immigrant music yeah. from all over the world. And what is more American than that? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing is what's more American than that. R- Rupert and Jack. America. Yeah. Bluegrass. Okay. So, Kim, we're going to wrap up our episode, I think, right now on bluegrass music, but we still have a little bit of time. Do you want to give a 
without going into a lot of detail, what we're going to be doing tonight and just kind of uh, yeah. what happens. Uh, but before we do that, I do want to give a shout out to our friend Mitch Gardner um, out in Pennsylvania who wrote us a very uh, sweet email about um, our State Fair episode and how uh, it brought back some memories for him. And so we're, we're very glad that we could do that for you, Mitch. Um, also, uh, just to let you know, recap... Um, Find us on Podbean, Stitcher, iTunes. Uh, we're now on, you can say, Alexa, play an hour of your life, and she'll do it. Um, uh, you can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Facebook. Email us at alosthour at gmail.com. Uh, so that's all the ways that you can get a hold of us. We are going to... Oh, hang on one second. Oh, yeah. So we are starting to get in more and more statistics. We have people listening to us. Hello, Australia. Yeah, and I thought it was my friend Neil. It's not. It's not. It's someone down in Victoria, Australia. So if you're listening to us down under, thanks for listening. Yeah, no thanks, Shoot, shoot Neil. us an email and tell us a little about, yeah, about yourself. Yeah, um, also, we'd love to hear from there. Don't forget that we have stickers. Um, that Just send me an email, alosthour at gmail.com. Let me know your address and your name. Yep, and you got you to gotta, you gotta follow. I'm going to take you on your word that you're going to follow us and share us and uh, send us your address. I'll send you a sticker. Uh, but after we wrap this up, we're actually going to go ahead across this big field that I can see out my window. Um, there is an organization that is camping with us tonight. And this is <laughs> this is just typical Steve. Like, I don't want to say coincidental. No. Oh, this there's nothing coincidental about this. We are We're pretty open about our faith, and this is definitely a God thing. Um, but this stuff kind of happens to you a lot. So we were out last night. We were walking the dogs, and we ran into a gentleman by the name of Bob who used to breed golden retrievers. Um, so we kind of got to talking. And Bob is with an organization called the Summit Project. Um, and basically what the Summit Project does is honors um, fallen Maine. Military members from Maine. From, from Maine. Maine, yes. Yeah, gold Star families. Yes, Gold Star families. Uh, and we... Um, you know, after talking to Bob, it's a really amazing organization. Uh, and we knew that we had our stuff with us. So we are actually going to go do a special episode of an hour of your life that is actually, it's going, we anticipate it being much longer than an hour, just so you know. Yep. Um, we're going to go interview, uh, Bob, we're going to interview a, a gentleman by the name of Greg Johnson, who is, um, one of the executive directors for the summit project. We're going to interview some gold star families, um, and we have been invited. You know what? I don't know how much we're going to do the interviewing. Oh, we're yeah. Go- we're going to give them allow a platform. Them to talk to, um, yes. to help promote. Sure. It's a, it's a 501C. Um, yeah. It's, it's not, we don't mean interview necessarily. It's going to get, we're going to give them a platform to talk about to their To help memorialize. Their yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and Greg was kind enough to invite us to take part in a ceremony that honors um, the fallen as well. So we might, uh, we might talk about that a little bit too. Um, but, uh, so, uh, if you're listening, this episode of bluegrass is going to be out on our, at our normal time on a Saturday today in a little bit. Um, I anticipate probably, uh, if you're listening today on Saturday, the day that we release, um, probably our special edition will be out hopefully by the end of the weekend, if not early, like it just depends on how many people want to talk. Yeah. So pretty soon in the next day or two. So keep an eye out for that. You got anything else? No, it's just we have enjoyed this trip. It's beautiful. If you guys ever get a chance to take a trip to Maine in the fall, I highly recommend it. Yeah. So, right. Kim, anything else? That's. I think that's it. So, from our beautiful mobile, mobile studio, studios. someplace in the deep woods of Maine, yeah, near Acadia <laughs> National Park, <laughs> Southwest Harbor, Maine. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us.